If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 17. As many of you are aware, we have been working our way through John for some time with intermittent breaks uh, for some differing series. We just did a shortly, just recently finished a series going through Church Covenant. And so today we are returning back to John for a brief period. Uh, That would be for one week. And then we're going to be focusing in the next several weeks on uh, a few Psalms. Uh, After that, uh, we will return back to John, which will then carry us through uh, the Passion Week, the cross at Easter, and of course the completion of the book of John uh, in the month of May. And so today we find ourselves in John 17. In my experience, which is, as many of you would perceive, not been very much, I'm still young. Others of you may perceive that to be a lot because you, well, they're all gone. All the ones that would look at me and say you're old. But in my experience, I've never met anyone personally who wasn't appreciative when I offered to pray for them. I said, you know, can I pray for you? Nor have I personally ever had someone decline uh, me whenever I said, can I pray for you right now? Whether or not someone was even an unbeliever, they have voiced gratitude when I would say to them, I will pray for you. Now, at various times, many of you have asked that I pray for you or the staff pray for you because you were facing some some sort of difficulty in your life or or, or walking through a particular struggle because of uh, present circumstances. And and whether it's you asking me or someone randomly asking me, I often wonder when when someone asks me to pray for them, what's really going through their mind? What what is it that you are thinking or what is it that that person is thinking when they say, please pray for me? I mean, is it that you or, or someone is hoping that somehow if, if they can garner enough prayer or enough people to pray for a particular thing, that then they'll get whatever it is that they want, whether that thing is good or bad. But, you know, if I get enough people to pray, then this is going to happen. Is that what motivates people to say, will you pray for me? Or, or is, is it that sometimes that the request for prayer is merely a, a cultural statement in our culture that seeks really to express one's present needs rather than actually getting someone to verbalize a prayer on their behalf? In other words, is it merely another way of saying, hey, look at me, I'm having a bad day. Pray for me. Now, these questions and, and many others like them seek to get at the purpose of prayer. Now, What does prayer actually accomplish? Does it actually change God's mind and therefore alter the course of history? Or is it, as many people would say, simply a process or something we go through where where it changes our hearts and our minds so that our desires then line up with God's? Now, I, I pose those questions, but I'm sorry to say that it's not my burden today to provide you with a satisfactory answer to questions that have been the subject of debate for nearly 2,000 years. These kind of questions, however, help provide us with a context to consider the text that is before us today in John chapter 17. If we are to understand anything at all about prayer, it would serve us well to consider the prayers of our Savior himself. And in John 17, we find one such occurrence. 
what some, and maybe even your Bible heading, has termed uh, the priestly prayer. Regardless of your needs or your circumstances at any given moment, I would imagine that out of all the possible people that could pray for you, you would desire above all for Jesus himself to be that one. I mean, come on. If you had your choice of people that, that would pray for you would, you, would you prefer me or Jesus? You don't need to answer that. It's obvious. I mean, of course we would choose above all Jesus to be the one to pray for us. And if anyone understood and understands the nature, the purpose, and even the process of prayer, Jesus did. If then you were to ask Jesus to pray for you, if you had that opportunity right now to say, Jesus, pray for me, how exactly would you want him to pray? Or what exactly would you want him to pray for on your behalf? Would you, would you desire Jesus to pray on your behalf? You know, Father, give them whatever they want. Is that what we would strive for? Would you desire Jesus to pray, you know, something like, hey, give them a better job or, 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 or more money? Of course, we don't get the option to di- dictate how or, or for what Jesus would pray on our behalf. But we do get a glimpse into how and for what Jesus would pray for us in this particular passage of Scripture. You can be certain of this, that Jesus continually stands as our intercessor before the Father even to this day. And while his circumstances have changed from the moment he voices this prayer in John 17... The nature and purpose of his, of his continual work of interceding on our behalf has not changed. While John 17 is not recorded in this gospel as a prayer for us to merely model, uh, I believe it is within reason to say that if we're going to pray effectively, it would serve us well to pray like Jesus. We should consider then what Jesus did and didn't pray for on behalf of those who follow him. So let's read together John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are yours and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them 
in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And I in them. Our Father, we do pray this morning for your divine help as we reflect on this passage, this prayer that you prayed on our behalf before you walked the path to the cross. And so, God, this morning as we seek to glean truth from your word, truth that that is intrinsic in it, but we sometimes struggle to pull out, I pray, Lord, that you you will direct our thoughts, that you will direct our hearts, and, Lord, give me... A mouth to speak, not merely a personal opinion, but your word. And and I pray for your people that you would give them ears to hear, not necessarily what would be in accordance with our our fleshly desires, but with the Spirit's desire within us. I pray, Lord, we would hear in accordance to your perfect will. And then, Lord, we pray as well for those who may very well be here this morning who have never repented of their sin and believed the gospel. Your word says that... uh, They are that way because they have not heard and understand and responded. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would give them ears to hear for the very first time the the majesty of the gospel that is wrapped up in your word, that is revealed to us. And Father, have your way in our hearts this morning. Give us clarity in your word for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In John 17, there's 26 verses here of which... We won't be able to do a great deal of justice to that much content. But John begins this passage with with these words. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. And then we find the the prayer to follow. But the question that's raised there is, is what words spoken by Jesus does John mean for us to understand? That when Jesus had spoken these words, he then lifted up his eyes and prayed. Well, based on the context of John's gospel, of which I know it's been some time since we've been there, this phrase likely points back to the content of Jesus' farewell discourse that is 
located in chapters 14 through 16. You see, once earlier, I believe in chapter 12, John revealed that the hour that we've talked about so much, the hour that had not yet come. But once John revealed that the hour was at hand, that it had come for Jesus to depart from this world, he then records in verse chapters 14 through 16, Jesus' words that were meant to prepare and encourage his disciples for the difficulty that was about to arise in the subsequent days. In these chapters, we discover that Jesus provides assurance for the future of believers. This assurance includes a place prepared for all whom, who follow him as the way, the truth, and the life. Reminding us that the only way to experience eternal life, whatever that may incorporate, the only way for us to experience that is through Jesus Christ. We read that in, in chapter 14. But this assurance also includes a peace that passes all understanding regardless of one's personal and present circumstances in this world. Jesus himself said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give, but a peace that goes beyond our natural and physical understanding. Jesus also reminds us all of the, of the definitive position of, of union with Christ, enjoyed by all who have truly come to know him. We read this in John 15. This position of union is expressed and enjoyed by all believers continually abiding in Christ just as the branches abide in the vine. Jesus then provides the promise of help to live for him in this world by means of the Spirit of God that would come after his departure. And we read about that in John chapter 16. Therefore, as believers... We have the continual hope of life after, life after death in the presence of our Creator. Joy in this life now through Christ. And a divine guarantee to preserve us in the midst of the trials and the tribulations that accompany life in this world for any and all who follow Christ. And with all this hope that Jesus is conveying in chapters 14, 15, and 16... Jesus is not oblivious to the the difficulty that would remain for his followers in this world. And therefore, prior to his final sin-conquering act on the cross, he prays for us. This prayer. I believe that John, trying to understand as best we can the whole inspiration of Scripture thing, but I think that John, and he purposely includes Jesus' prayer at this juncture in his gospel under divine inspiration to to reveal to us Jesus' love and concern for his followers and to remind us of the things that matter most for those seeking to follow Christ in these last days. So Jesus' prayer provides us with at least three concepts that are worth our consideration this morning. And they go something like this. Number one, the, uh, the concentrated focus of one who seeks the glory of God and the glory of Christ. Number two, the distinctive identity of those who follow Christ. And number three, the the greatest needs of all believers in this life. That's under that third heading that we're going to discover uh, the particular specific nature of Christ's request to the Father for us. So first we turn our attention to the glory of the Father and Son. The scripture often from beginning to end, speaks in some way or another of the idea of glorifying God or the phrase, the glory of God. Now, that's, 
That's kind of one of those elusive concepts, isn't it, sometimes? The glory of God. The term to glorify has such a wide range of meaning depending on, upon its, its context. And, and so we, we have to be aware of the context in which we're reading to, per, to specifically understand exactly what it may be pointing to. It, it can mean to, to magnify. It can mean to, to make known or to make famous. It can mean to obey or to fulfill the wishes of, in this case, God, along with a variety of other specific meanings. In other words, when we speak of glorifying God, when we say, I, I want to glorify God, we can mean that we should obey Him. That's, that's, that can be one meaning conveyed through that. It can mean that we desire to make Him famous among the nations and by proclaiming the gospel. Or it could mean that we seek to fulfill a particular task, or it can mean all of the above, as it often does. But in our present context, as Jesus prays to, to glorify the Father and for his, Himself to be glorified, We discover the intended meaning by reading on about what Jesus says after he says this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And as he continues, he helps us to focus in on exactly what it is that he is intending to convey to us in that word to glorify. You see, in verse 4, we find that the term glorify is is speaking of Jesus accomplishing the work he was sent to do. And and then in verse 5... Uh, That term glorify references the resurrection and ascension and therefore ultimately the transformation of Christ's human body at the resurrection, much like the glorification that every true believer will experience when Christ returns. But yet if we take those, those ideas or concepts about glorifying or glory and we sum up the intent of Jesus' prayer here, we find that the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son is bound up in the provision of eternal life, which is stated very clearly in verse 2. When Jesus says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. It is for this purpose that Christ accomplished his work on earth. By living a perfect, sinless life in human flesh, and then subsequently going to the cross and dying in order that he might declare, It is finished and then rising from the dead and ascending to the father where he continues as i said already to intercede on our behalf jesus makes this idea of glorifying god through the provision of eternal life even clearer when he defines exactly what eternal life is in verse three and we use that phrase again can be somewhat of an elusive phrase when we use it generally eternal life but jesus tells us specifically what It means in verse 3 when he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So according to Jesus, eternal life is knowing the only true God and his Son, Jesus Christ. The glory of the Father and the glory of his Son, Jesus, does not hinge... Now, you've got to listen to this entire statement. It does not hinge on how many people make it into heaven as we perceive it, though this is certainly the result of eternal life. Eternal life is a present knowledge of God through Jesus Christ that continues without end. That's eternal life. A present knowledge, knowing God and His Son, Jesus Christ, now that continues Without end. Salvation is not merely avoiding hell and squeezing through the gates of heaven by the skin of your teeth. The gospel, therefore, is not merely a pitch to get sinners to simply 
pray a prayer by maybe scaring them about where it is that they might spend eternity. Eternal life, and therefore the message of the gospel, is about the knowledge of God and the knowledge of His Son, Jesus. And good, good, good thing for us that Scripture is replete with references about knowing Christ. One of the few passages, and, and I have to say it this way because it's not documented, one of the few passages in Scripture, if not the only one, that refers to fear of hell as the method of bringing sinners to repentance is the rich man and Lazarus found in Luke chapter 16. Now, you understand what I said. Not that the Bible doesn't speak of fear of hell. It does. But fear of hell as the method to bring sinners to salvation. Now, one of the few things I could locate on that was Luke 16. And in that passage, the rich man asked Abraham to send Lazarus to his brothers to warn them uh, about the, the horrible existence and experience of Hades. And Abraham's response was if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen to one though he come back from the dead. Now the implication is that the word of God is the only means by which sinners will come to repentance. Now I know we hear that, but you need to hear that. The word of God is the only means by which sinners will come to repentance. And this is so because it is the word of God by which sinners come to a knowledge of who God is and a knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. And it's for this reason that Paul himself declares in Romans 10, that that chapter that is so wonderful about a mission-minded proclamation of the gospel, Paul says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if the glory of God and the glory of his son Jesus is bound up in the provision of eternal life, and if eternal life is knowing God and his son Jesus then we learn through Jesus' own prayer that that we, too, must seek to declare the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ if we are going to, like Jesus, pursue the glory of God. This means, in the very least, that little trite sayings and bumper sticker theology are insufficient. You know, it's great to know some, some little things, but they're not enough. We go beyond that in the knowledge of God and His Son. As we will discover in the rest of Jesus' prayer, Christ's followers must grow in the knowledge of Christ and and His Word if we are to glorify God by proclaiming the message of eternal life to the world around us. So we must pursue Christ with the same passion that caused Paul to declare that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Not only does this, this prayer reveal the concept of the, the glory of the Father and of the Son, but also the identity of believers, a particular identity of believers. And this concept we find, discover in this prayer as we walk through it, read, read through it, we find that Jesus designates believers in a particular way. Now, it's common for many people, and you've probably heard it, you've maybe said it, I know there's probably been times I've been, to, to refer to everyone as children of God. Now, while it is true that every human being is created in the image of God, not all are children of God. You see, we walk out the doors and we look at the people, our neighbors and the nice folks and all that stuff. You need to realize, this moment, you need to realize that just because people are nice and sweet and all this kind of, doesn't mean they're children of God. We pray they are, but it doesn't mean that we need to to understand that. There is a clear biblical distinction 
throughout Scripture between those who are and those who are not the children of God. In Jesus' prayer, Jesus identifies believers by two distinct phrases. It's really the second that I, that I want us to focus our attention to. But these two phrases that are repeated throughout this prayer are the people whom God gave to him and those who are not of the world. It's five different times as you read through these 26 verses. Once in t- verse 2, twice in verse 6, once in verse 9, and then again in 24. Jesus addresses believers as those whom the Father has given him. So at the very least, Jesus is marking out believers from a larger group, which he will later identify as the world. Earlier in John 6, we, we read a similar statement that, that sheds a little light on this particular identification. When Jesus said in John six thirty seven, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Those that the Father gives the Son come to Christ in repentance and, and belief and are fully accepted. This reality becomes evidence, or we see this borne out in, in the lives of sinners, ourselves as well as others, by, by the, the evidence or the, the act of repenting and believing the gospel message. As Jesus says, all who come to me I will never cast out. It is this particular people which, according to verse 20, includes also those who will believe because of the disciples' word that Jesus says he's praying for. This is the focus of Jesus' prayer in this passage, a particular people. And in addition to that particular identification, Jesus refers to those whom he is praying for as those who are not of the world in verses 14 and verse 16. In light of the previous designation, this phrase, not of the world, marks the definitive position of all who truly believe. That, that, that is, all those who are the ones the Father has given him, which are all those who experience eternal life that Jesus came to secure. This particular identification as those who are not of the world. It is not a mark of one's individual character. Now, I'm not saying that character doesn't express something tied with this. But this is not a focus or a mark of one's individual character, but, but that which defines us as believers. Those who truly follow Christ, everyone included, who has trusted Christ, are not of the world. So if you're a believer today, then whether you would say this or not, the Bible declares you are not of the world. The concept of the world, spoken of throughout this chapter and often in other places in John, refers to all human beings who stand in opposition to the glory of God, whether they do so aggressively or passively. So when you say the world, sometimes we recognize it it may merely be focusing on everyone, including those of us who believe. but, But here particularly, it's marking a distinction between a particular people and everyone else. The world is those who stand in opposition to God, whether they do so knowingly, I don't like God, or whether they do so without knowing, in ignorance. They don't recognize that they're standing in opposition to God's glory. And while we may be able to identify some of those people who say, I'm a believer, but they don't seem to be characterized by living a life that is not of the world. And you know what I'm talking about. You've seen people and you, and you think they're so worldly. And, you, and maybe you question their, even their, their profession of faith because they are so tied into the world. Whether or not we can possibly identify some who might be characterized that way, the reality stands true that those who have trusted in Christ are not of the world. One of the phrases that captured my attention while I was in seminary in my ethics class uh, went something like this. I don't know if this is the exact 
quote, but it was, Sanctification is becoming in practice what we already are declared in position. You hear that? Sanctification is becoming in practice what we're already declared to be in position. This statement seeks to convey the truth that once we are saved by God's grace, we are given a new status. This doesn't mean that we suddenly become sinless. Don't we wish? But that we have been given a a status before God that we will spend the rest of our lives here in this world seeking to live up to. The Bible teaches us that at the moment of salvation, when we repent and believe the gospel, we're justified before God. That means that God declares us in right standing with him. That's not a basis of character or or mere actions. It's, It's a declaration that he makes. And we don't immediately become righteous. We can't therefore say, I, I and myself am righteous. Because our, our conduct reveals that we're not. We don't become righteous in our conduct the moment we're saved. But we are declared to be righteous on the basis of the righteousness of another. That is the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, imputed to us, credited to us on our behalf. In other words, the Bible teaches that we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into The kingdom of his marvelous light. Or as Romans 5 describes to us, we are transferred from the the race that has been defined by the headship of Adam, which everyone is born into. We're transferred from that into a new race of humans that is defined by the headship of Jesus Christ, the second Adam who did everything as he was supposed to. Or, Or the Bible tells us that at that moment of salvation that we become new creations in Christ. Yet... In that moment, if you reflect back on that time you repented, in that moment, from our perspective, nothing definitively changes. We still struggle with sin, maybe even after that, more so in some respects. We still want to live for ourselves. But all that God says about us is still true. Regardless of that post-salvation struggle that we may face from time to time or even in some continuous sense no matter how selfish we may still find ourselves to be struggling with what god says about us you're not of the world still rings true in the process of our growth as believers we are being conformed into the image of our savior until finally one day we will become in practice what god has already declared us to be in position The day when Christ returns, we will finally achieve in character and in practice the full image of our Savior. And this is what the Bible teaches us is the glorification of believers. The day in which we we ourselves will be glorified. But until we begin, and here's the point really. Until we begin to recognize that as believers we are declared to be not of the world in position we will unlikely, it will be unlikely that we will pursue this identification in character. You see the difference there between character and the declared position. Until we begin to recognize that God says, I'm not of the world. It's unlikely that we're going to begin to strive ourselves and desire to, to live like we're not of the world. If we realize that God's word declares this, therefore it is true that God has said that we are a people who are not of the world we will find ourselves desiring to act like we are not. Until then, 
sad to say, many believers settle for living just like the rest of the world. And that's a world who stands in opposition to our king. Too often we seem to think that we're supposed to fit in in this world. I mean, we're wired that way. We work hard to be accepted. We work hard in many aspects not to stand out. But the reality is believers don't fit in. I mean, God says it. Jesus prays it. He says it. You're not of this world. You don't fit in. We're not supposed to. Being culturally relevant shouldn't come easy to us anymore. It should be a foreign idea. Now, I understand the sentiment that we seek to express in the ideal of being culturally relevant. And I'm not denying that to a certain extent, but, but we should proceed in, proceed in that arena with extreme caution. Because often that term being culturally relevant is merely a desire for us to fit into this world. Becoming all things to all people, as Paul says it, does not mean living like the world or fitting in. I don't have to act like a teenager or be a teenager to effectively minister to a teenager. I don't have to act like or be a senior adult to effectively minister to a senior adult. You don't have to have children to be able to effectively minister and serve those who have children. So Paul's not saying becoming all things to all people means being just like them. Nor do you have to act like or become like the world in order to effectively impact the world for the sake of the gospel. All those who believe are those Jesus designates as the ones whom the Father has given to him. And you can be certain of this designation if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ. All those who believe are are those who have been given a new position that is not of the world. As such, believers occupy a distinct and a privileged position in this world, yet distinct from this world. You either belong to Christ, which will be evidenced by your repentance and your faith, or you will be characterized and defined by the world. When we begin to understand the purpose and goal of God's glory and our personal identity as believers, then we will better be able to appreciate the implications of the requests that Christ makes on our behalf in the final portions of this prayer. We see, beginning in verse 11, that Jesus makes three specific requests to the Father on behalf of those who follow him. And these three requests can be summed up under three headings. Preservation, sanctification, and glorification. This is a subject for which Jesus prayed, the subjects for which Jesus prayed for us. First, preservation. In verses 11 and 15, Jesus petitions the Father to keep or guard believers. In other words, Jesus asks that God preserve those who follow him. Jesus' first request uh, that believers be kept, or his first request in verse 11 is that believers be kept in the Father's name. And essentially, this, this request is that God would guarantee that all who follow Christ would not stray but would stay instead true to the gospel. It is equal to Jesus praying, Father, please don't let them turn away or or to make shipwreck of their faith. The flip side of that request is found in verse 15. It's really the same singular request, but this time Jesus prays that the Father would keep them from the evil one. 
And it is the purpose of the devil to do that very thing, to make, cause us to make shipwreck of our faith, to, to, to cause us to walk out those doors and say, I don't believe anymore, to make us go back into the world and leave behind the reality and the glory of the gospel. Peter says that the devil is like a roaring lion, roaming about seeking whomever he may devour. That includes you and I. And Jesus is very aware as he prays this prayer. He's very aware of the difficulty that would arise for those who would profess the name of Christ and seek to live different from the world in which they live. It would be understandable. And it is in my mind. I mean, this is one of those difficult things. It it would be understandable in many of the circumstances that we read about or uh, throughout history of those who believe. Uh, It's easy to understand why some would say, I don't believe. No, I, I deny the name. I mean, think about it. You've probably heard some of the stories. And we can understand why somebody would do that, given the threats and the tribulation that they face. So if believers are going to stand firm for the glory of God, it will require something greater than sheer willpower. It will require supernatural intervention. And that is exactly what Jesus prays for. And what scripture teaches us elsewhere is guaranteed for all who truly believe. Some have termed this concept under the heading of assurance of salvation or once saved, always saved. But I think the more fitting term is preservation. God guarantees to preserve those who believe. This preservation guarantees for us by the divine help of God, the intervention of God, that those who believe will persevere to the end. We need not concern ourselves then with the theoretical situations that, that might arise in our lives. What if our government turns completely against Christians and, and threatens our lives. What, what would I do? How would I be able to... You don't have to worry about it. You don't, you don't need to walk there now. Just trust that in that time, God will provide the grace necessary for you to stand firm in your faith. Jesus prayed this for you, and God promises to come through on it. Second, sanctification. The next, this is the next request that Jesus makes on behalf of, of believers, and it's found in verse 17 when he says, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Jesus' Jesus' desire for believers is that we all increasingly become in practice what I've said before, that what we are already declared to be in position. That's his desire for us. And while the Bible speaks of what you may hear termed positional sanctification, I don't know if you're familiar with that idea. I'll explain it in a second. What Jesus is talking about is what we call progressive sanctification. This is what he's praying about. You see, at the moment that you're saved, not only are you declared righteous, justified, but you're sanctified in the moment. You're set apart for holy purpose. That's, that is a positional sanctification, the moment of salvation. But, but not only that, the Bible teaches us about this ongoing process of us continually be, being set apart, which we often call progressive sanctification. So what Jesus prays for is, is the ongoing work of this in our lives. And as I mentioned before, we don't become perfect the moment we're saved. But we are guaranteed one day to be made perfect. So during this intervening time, from the moment we we come to Christ, repenting and believing, and the moment that that, that Christ glorifies us, ultimately, during that intervening time, we will undergo a slow process of being made holy. It might be a little more difficult for some of us than others. Our current hope rests in the righteousness of the sinless Son of God. That's where our hope is now. But our current hope looks forward to the day when we ourselves will be made righteous in the presence of our King. Jesus reveals 
the means of this ongoing sanctification. When he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. While there are, and I hope you hear this, while there are many helpful things out there to help us along in our lives as Christians, the ultimate source of our sanctification is the word of God. Period. It's the word of God. Jesus' desire for you and for me uh, to be made holy is to be made holy in the truth. And it is God's word, he says, is truth. Therefore, we are to be made holy in the truth, in the word of God. It is for this reason that Jesus gave his life. He says this very thing. He didn't die so that we might, again, painstakingly squeeze through the gates of heaven by the skin of our teeth. He didn't die so that we might merely pray a prayer and and then go about life as we see fit. In his words, he prays and he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself. That's just another way of saying, for their sake, I'm going to the cross. I'm giving it all for them so that they also may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus died on your behalf so that you might be sanctified in the word of God. We can't expect to experience productive sanctification apart from the word of God. Nor should we expect to grow in our godly character in this process of sanctification when we seek as little of God's word as possible. We should passionately desire to be in his word, to know his word, and to be transformed by his word. If you have no desire, and listen to me, if you have no desire or very little desire for the word of God, you should be asking yourself, why? Why? Why don't I, why don't I want to, to read God's word? Why don't I want to know more of it? Why don't I not want to experience it? A so-called Christian who has no desire for the very thing that God has given to us to increase our knowledge and our love of him may not be so Christian at all. Jesus prays for you to be conformed to his own image through the process of sanctification by means of the word of God. Finally, Jesus prays for the ultimate outcome of our salvation. One day all believers will experience the ultimate transformation. And we look forward to that day. When Christ returns, it says, the Bible teaches us that the dead in Christ will be raised and then those who are alive and remain shall be called together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then in another place, we find that in that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. It's a reference. That's what we often call the glorification of believers. That's the moment when we achieve in practice and in full character what we've already been declared to be. Perfect, righteous, Jesus prays that his followers will be where he is. It's his final request, that, that, that they would be where he is and behold his glory. This is ultimately a request that believers would experience that full and final transformation. Paul <clears throat> reveals the certainty, and, and I stress certainty, with which we can all, as believers, look forward to this particular reality, that, that day when we are made perfect in Romans eight twenty nine and 30, when he writes, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's not a single person who repents of their sin and believes the gospel following Christ with their lives that will miss out on that grand day. Every single one will experience this grand glorification for which Jesus prays 
on your behalf. You see, this is the kind of prayer that Jesus prays for us. I mean, you know, we want sometimes him to say, you know, you know, help them have an easy life. Make it easy. You know, get rid of all those heathens out there so that the path of the Christians will, will be smooth. He doesn't pray anything like that. He prays for our preservation. He prays for our sanctification. He prays for our glorification. In summary, this prayer is for perseverance in the faith in the face of tribulation. It's for our continued growth and conformity to the image of our Lord and our ultimate hope of full and final salvation in the presence of Christ himself. And then there's many places throughout this passage of which I I can't take time to, to focus it on, but it gives us the purpose for which Christ prays these kinds of things for us. You see, Jesus' desire for his people is that we might experience union with him as we enjoy unity amongst ourselves. He continually says that they may be one, that they may be one. His desire is that we may know the joy of Christ in our lives, no matter what we may face, so that we come to understand that our, our it's not about our happiness, but our joy that we have, whether things are going well or not, because it's a joy that comes from Christ himself and is offered to those who are in Christ He prays that we would continue to experience the unfailing love of God and that by our testimony, and here he says this a number of times, that by this testimony, that the world would know that you have sent me. In essence, that the world would know that Jesus is indeed Lord of all. So this prayer terminates in this purpose of the proclamation of the gospel for the sake of eternal life of the world for which Jesus began with. Glorify yourself, Father, and glorify me in this, since you have given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to those whom you have given to me. This is is the glory of God. And Jesus rounds this out that the world may know, that the world may know. This should be our desire for each other and therefore our continual prayer for one another regardless of the temporary things that come and go in our lives. And what that means is when you say to me, Pastor, would you pray for me? And I say, absolutely. My prayer might not be the prayer that you might be thinking of. My prayer might be, might not be, you got to take away all their difficulties. My prayer will, if I want to pray like Christ, is going to be, Lord, preserve them through this. Through this. Lord, use this difficulty in their lives to, to sanctify them the truth as they run and, and bear themselves in the marvelous word of truth. And Lord, remind them constantly that what we face here and now is just for that purpose, to point us forward to the day that we are guaranteed with certainty when we will be removed from this world out of the presence of sin to an existence that is forever glorious in the presence of our Lord and King Jesus Christ. That's the prayers we should pray for one another. Do I care about your economic status? Yes. Do I care about your job status? Yes. Do I care about your family difficulties and and all those things? Yes, I do. But more important than all of those things is the glory of God as he seeks to magnify that glory through your perseverance, through your sanctification, and through your ultimate glorification. We have a certain future. The path we walk along the way now To our destination may differ in the kind and the degree of our trials. 
But we are guaranteed the final destination if we truly trust in Christ. As the song says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So regardless of our current circumstances that you may be facing even in this very moment, as followers of Christ, we can declare wholeheartedly and with great confidence that we do have victory in Jesus. Amen? He presently sits at the right hand of the Father in this very moment, right now. He sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding, praying on behalf of all those who follow him. And I am certain that his prayer for us has not changed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you continually intercede on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, that that we would get, at the very least, from this word, the, the significant focus on the proclamation of the gospel that the world may know as the the way through which you are ultimately glorified so we have never separate that proclamation from your glory. But that bound up with that is so many other things and our, our passion for you and our desire to not be of this world as we bury ourselves in the scriptures and submit ourselves to the scripture, place ourselves under the scripture so that the scripture might transform us. And so, Father, I pray for those whom you prayed for, all those who have believed in your name, that, Father, you would help them to recognize their positional status as those who are not of this world. And I pray that doing so would allow them to begin to stop trying to fit in, but rather to, to glory in their distinction, to glory in the fact that the world may look at us and say, those are some weird people. I pray, Lord, that you would continually sanctify their them and conform them to the image of our glorious Savior through the circumstances of their lives. And may that, whether they be good or bad, may they drive them to the very word, which is the truth by which we are sanctified. And I, Father, uh, Father, I pray that while we go through all the ups and downs of this life and the struggles through what we should and shouldn't do and how we're supposed to fulfill and serve you, I pray that our, our sights would be set far ahead on the great promise that you've given us, the great hope of glory. The reality that one day, while I know right now that I am far from righteous in myself, that one day, because of Christ, I will be made perfect. I will fully experience in character and practice all that you have already declared me to be in the new status as one who follows Christ and believes in his word. Father, I pray that for your people today. I especially pray in this moment, Lord, that if there's someone who has never come to experience the glory of the gospel, they've never been, their eyes have never been opened, they've never heard really heard the truth of the gospel, I pray that, Lord, you would give them ears to hear now, eyes to see, and that you would, by your grace, transform their hearts, bring life where there is no life, bring sight where there is no sight, and do the work that only you can do through the power of the Holy Spirit. Transform minds, transform hearts, and cause people to run to the cross that they might know you and your Son. Father, have your way in our hearts today, we pray. In the only name by which we can pray. The one who stands or sits before the Father interceding on our behalf, even now, we pray in the great name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.